Assalamualaikum. Alaikum salam. What's going on, Dr. Arshia? I'm not a doctor. Or professor? Or <laughs> not a professor. Not, not a professor either? No, CEO. That's it. CEO right Arshia, mashallah, <laughs> of the, the Muslim Legal Fund of America, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Solid, mashallah. And we're just ch- chilling here in a Chicago bakery. This is, uh, what's this called again? Sweet Reserve. Sweet Reserve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how we're going to have the snacks while we're doing this, but let's see how this goes. You got it. Kashmiri chai. I'm looking forward to it. Mashallah. Um, so I just wanted to jump into your background real quick because um, I know you're, I think you said you're Canadian. I am Canadian, born and raised. Yeah. So, so why did you come to the U.S.? We, we could start there. Why did a lot of Desi women come to the U.S.? I got married. Okay. <laughs> I got married and moved to the U.S. in 2005. Okay. You're mm-hmm. from what part of Canada? Um, I grew up in Pickering, Ontario. I was born in Toronto proper, Scarborough at the time. It's considered Toronto right now. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you somehow landed in Chicago? Mm-hmm. I landed in Chicago 2005, and I've been here ever since. Okay. So what did you study in undergrad that got you interested in nonprofit work for the Muslim community? Nothing. I was actually always interested in serving humanity so my mm-hmm. un- and understanding humanity. So there was a couple of intersections within me uh, since as far as I could remember. So I actually studied psychology at the University of Toronto. Um, and my and I was trained as a cl- clinical counselor, mm-hmm. um, but during that time I was always interested in helping kids and and the poor, the underserved, the underdog. I was always kind of going for the underdog. So I did a lot of volunteer work, uh, even as a young you know sixteen year old, fifteen year old. I started volunteering, so I was always in the nonprofit space. Mm-hmm. Um, my after my education, I landed in a corporate job, but I was still a counselor uh, in a corporate world, but my satisfaction was really grassroots and with people and so I did a lot of volunteer work. Uh, When I moved to the US I had the option of going back to school. I had to get relicensed if I was going to practice counseling here and I I was kind of burnt out. I had dealt with a lot of you know a lot of issues you know and I didn't want to kind of I was like "Hmm, maybe try something different but what actually landed me into the nonprofit sector was my desire to play basketball. I love okay. playing basketball. I was just new and I had no friends and I was walking around and I walked into a building that said YWCA, but my brain saw YMCA. <laughs> so I, I went in and I said, hey, I'm, look, I'm new to this country. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm looking uh, for a place where I can play basketball. And I don't know, I think it was my hijab now in retrospect. Uh, the woman was like, well, you're actually in the YWCA. And I was like, what's the YWCA? And she actually asked me to pause. She went back and brought her program director out. They asked me if I would talk to them in, in the back. So I said, yeah. sure. And I walked out with a directorship. Um, they wow. offered me a position on the spot. They asked, they talked to me. We kind of went my psychology, youth. I had volunteer experience, this, that, the other. I was like, but I can't even work. But they offered me a position as a volunteer director of racial justice and youth programming. And um, they said, just whenever you get your paperwork, we'll hire you. But we'd love for you to start. So I was like, whoa, I walked out to play and I walked in with a job. Uh, So that was my first uh, entrance into the nonprofit sector here in the U.S. I come from a big family, um, you know, and I was still I was by myself, my husband and I at the time. I was still bored. I wanted something more to do. So I went to my mosque and I said, hey, I'm here. And yeah. um, what is there anything I can do to help? And does the masjid need any? 
and they connected me to an organization called the Umma Center. They said, you know, there's a new nonprofit that just opened. Uh, maybe you can help them. So I met with the wife of the executive director of that organization, and she said, my husband needs help with filing. I was like, okay, whatever, I'll go help him file. I walked into his space, and I walked out on their board. So I never wow. actually, well, I've never filed a day of my life there. I actually hired people to file. But as him and I met, um, he asked me if I would join their board. And so I became their second in board strategy and organizational development. So in 2005, you know, I kind of went random just to do what I needed to do, but Allah positioned me to really take a footing into the nonprofit sector, and I've been there ever since. So how old are you at this stage when you were joining those boards? Um, I was in my early, I was in my late 20s. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then are, you're married, you don't have any kids? At that time, no. Okay. N now it's a different story. Right. So, so what, what is it that you came in and you pitched yourself that made them take you on so quickly like what how did you show your competency i don't actually know i just spoke i don't okay. know what i don't really know what led i think like i said i think in the ywca i think it could have been my hijab because mm -hmm. later there was a lot of issues of tokenization i had a lot of people upset at how quickly i had taken a directorship and people had been there so I learned those things eventually but as a as a 20 year old new to a country kind of not yeah. knowing anyone I I wasn't paying attention to those issues at the time but I do yeah. think my hijab was something that became the YWC had never really ex I had a lot of issues back then even then in my interview um, I was asked by so I was hired by the program director mm -hmm. but when I went for a formal interview with the executive director they asked me how will I ensure that my children don't become terrorists? Now, granted, oh, I'm newly damn. married. I have no children. I'm Muslim. I'm in this space. I wear hijab. And the question in the interview is, how will you ensure that your unborn children will not become terrorists? I was like, whoa. That's I, crazy. It was, and that, actually, that first year in the United States was really difficult for me. I think I took a lot for granted being Canadian. And I assumed that Canada and the U.S. were very similar, right? Yeah. But no, the politics of the United States hit me pretty hard. I, I was called a bomb bag lady. Wow. I was who? told just, you know, I, I was at a restaurant with my husband in New York mm. and he, we stepped out and I had to use the restroom. I stepped back in. And as I'm walking in, they they were saying, oh, look at that bomb bag lady just left. And wow. and then I caught them in their face and they look away. So that first year was actually extremely challenging for me as a Muslim woman entering the United States. Um, I was very challenged by it, I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah. Even working at the YWCA, I was director of racial justice, but for most of the trainings I was asked to sit out because they didn't know where to put a minority brown girl. They had black, white, and Hispanic. So that was my first training at the Y. I was, they had this, oh, we're having diversity training and you're the director. And literally they had a black, white, and a Hispanic person and they didn't know where to put me. I sat in a corner like I was in a timeout and for three days and at the end of it my program director was crying and so we started to really I didn't realize my presence was challenging uh, systems that they had never paid attention to yeah. I would host meetings for the the youth in my community and they would talk to me about the hijab so Islam and the politics of Islam and hijab and the politics of hijab hit me 
in 2005, you know, like a ton of bricks. I was expecting yeah. my first child and I had issues going in and out of airplanes. I had people mocking me. And at the time, my husband, you know, defended me. And I remember pulling him and saying, don't say anything. Yeah. And what I what I didn't know and what I'm what I have become very cognizant of as the CEO of MLFA is how much of that I had internalized, how much of my husband, myself, I was like, don't say anything, look down there. You know, I felt attacked. But instead of feeling like I need to fight back, I need to speak back, although I was always a fighter and I was always changing a change agent that was really personal to me yeah. and i remember walking into the plane where they had announced that these two people were coming in don't make eye contact it was just the most my husband was playing with me at the time and i was like don't play with me don't look at me don't talk to me just look down i didn't realize like how 17 years later i would be the ceo of mlfa and what that internalized islamophobia how that shaped my you know my experiences um, I can go on and on. I, I don't know if you want more of that. No, no, go ahead. It was very traumatic, I, I would say. Like, so, so you were going onto a plane, and they told everyone on the plane, don't look at these two coming on? Because mm -hmm. there, there was a verbal argument with my husband. Who, mm -hmm. So the, a bunch of young boys had come in front of me and were trying to bud the line. Mm. And instead of them being you know, taken aback or whatever, it was my husband and me who were kind of you know, so all of those sorts of issues. I think you get what I'm saying. So, wow, mm -hmm. that's insane. And that's just a few. I I can keep going. Like my first few years, I was like, where am I? And I remember, and I've said this before, when I left, I went back to visit Canada. I actually kissed the ground. I felt like relieved, like, oh my God, I've left. I'm home. Like, I remember just taking my little baby and going back and I was like, oh my God, I'm home. Like, I'm in Canada. Like, I was like, oh my God. Like, because that's how hard that felt for me. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, taken from my family. I didn't have family. I didn't have friends. I just had my one person and he was working all the time. So I just felt really like, what am I doing? And everywhere I went, I was. Um, on spectacle, right? I was yeah. being watched. I was being commented on. I was being talked about. So it was just a very unsettling experience. I hear you. So just to jump back to the OMA organization that you were mm -hmm. talking about earlier, you were working there doing some sort of filing. What's never did filing. Okay, you I never did filing. I joined their board. Okay. <laughs> so I was VP of their board, Organizational and Strategic Development. Um, and so I did that while I was working at the YWCA mm -hmm. as the director of racial justice and youth programming. Um, and then my other Canadian American intersection was when I start when I was expecting my first son. Okay. And so I, I was like, okay, what does Matt leave look like? You know, I can't in Canada. I would have had a year and a half fully paid. I was corporate, you know, like, and so here was like, no, you just leave your baby six weeks old with, uh, you know, with a stranger. And I was like, what do you mean? I that's what I do. Oh well, it must, so, must be different back then because now now there is maternity leave. leave well, there right? is maternity leave, but it doesn't compare to Canadian maternity leave. Well, what does that look like? A full year and a half. Now it's eighteen months, fully paid, fully taken wow. care of, my job reserved. So I would have lost no benefit because I was in corporate. And I would have had 18 months at home with my child. Here, it was six weeks for some people. I was a director, so I was getting three months. But again, I, mm. there was a woman at that six-week mark who worked with me. Yeah. And I felt bad. You know, her and I were pregnant at the same time. We were going to have our babies at the same time. And I was getting three months, and she was getting six, six weeks. weeks. Yeah. That bothered me. 
And so then my boss at the time was like, well, you come up with some, I said, we're here to empower women and eliminate racism. And I don't feel very empowered, right? So it was those intersections that I kept fighting or going up against. So then she was like, you can work from home and you're still gonna have your job. But you know, my son had some food allergies, which were new to me. I was a new mom and I just decided, I mean, the hardest decision of my life was like, I'm just gonna let go and I'm gonna be a mom and I am not going to work anymore, which I've been working since I was young. I told you I started volunteering yeah. and stuff. So that was a hard call for me personally. Um, but I said, you know what, I'm a mom. I had my background in psychology, you know, having this child and not being available or present for him wasn't an option that I wanted to kind of live out. So yeah. I chose to stop working at the Y. I resigned, but they were giving me everything. You can work from home. You could like, or should take it. Like, don't leave us, take it. Yeah. Uh, but I was like, no, my son comes first. And at that intersection, then Uma came back to me and we had just won our big grant, a first very big grant. Um, and Uma said, hey, get off our board. Can you work for us and do it out your way? Um, so it was a win-win for me. I was like, okay. So I never actually stopped working. I just changed the way I worked. And um, so I continued on with Uma as a consultant and, uh, you know, kind of developing the Uma Center. And I let go of the YW at the time. I got gotcha. you. Mm-hmm. A full year and a half of maternity. Like we, <laughs> That's where you're still stuck. I'm, I'm still thinking about 18 that. 18 months I'm, now. That's, that's 18, fu- 18 months fully paid. You just stay home with your child. You just take care of your baby. You're getting your paycheck and you're getting all your benefits. Like, Doesn't that cost a ton to the company though? I mean, what's the cost of after? So what I realized in those years that I was struggling yeah. was Canada was about prevention and the United States was about treatment. So I was like, I remember walking again in that same, I was like, whoa, because I saw people smoking. And so my whole two, my worlds were kind of coming together in my head. And I was like, oh, I get it. This country gives it all. Uh And then you got to pay to fix it. (laughs) That country says, ah, we're paying. So you don't get to do X, Y, and Z. So preventative versus treatment. I mean, that's the easiest way for me to tell you the difference in the way I grew up and then the way I'm raising my own children. I hear you. Okay, so you, so you go back to, to Oma and you're working for him now. Mm-hmm. Um, how does this stepping stone lead to your work at the MLFA? Um, I, was, I was at Oma Center for 10 years and I really got to learn nonprofit development for a long time. I think I was one of the few Muslim women who held the title as development mm. um, because it wasn't something that, you know, a lot of our nonprofits developed and there was a lot of mosque fundraising and, you know, that's kind of how we made our bread and butter. But Ummah wasn't like that, you know, it was, it was very development focused from day one. And so I worked very closely with the executive director, who was like a dear friend and a brother of mine. And, you know, we were doing development work. And we went, I went to the Kellogg School of Business and I started learning development um, before development really even became a thing. Mm. Um, so I think that really, that's probably the clearest way that led to my um, position at MLFA because I was hired at MLFA as their first ever chief development officer, which was a title that I held um, and owned starting at Ummah um, and then throughout my career. I gotcha. So it, you went straight from Ummah to MLFA? Nope. I took a little bit of an interest. I went to the AIC for a few years. Um, so I did Ummah for 10 years 
I had some personal goals uh, during that time. I got divorced, so I was okay. a single mom for quite a bit of time. Mm-hmm. Um, got involved in the legal system, so I was up close and personal as a Muslim woman in the legal system. Um, my ex-husband now, you know, it was it was fairly difficult to go through that process, but I started sure. to notice how being a Muslim woman in the courtrooms and in the system was also an issue. So there was a time where my ch- my friends who were uh, advocates for abuse and other things said, Arshia, this is, um, you need to go take off your hijab and go grab your kids. Because I was stuck in a custody battle mm. that didn't make sense to me. There was no reason why this should have been a battle. There was there were certain things that were pretty clear and evident and why I would have been the best you know caretaker for my children. Yeah. Um, but the system was just pulling me through and there were conversations of she follows Sharia law. No um, way. And I remember the entire, in our trial, the entire uh, space gasped. I was questioned wow. about uh, halal and haram. I was, your honor, she doesn't feed her children food from people of the book. Oh my God. Um, so since I've entered this country, my religion and my gender and my hijab have been on trial. So I, I actually lived those moments. And I remember my, when my friend said, Arsha, take off your hijab, go get your kids. I was in a crisis because I was like, Ya Allah, do I really do that? But I saw them gasp. And my children were very young at the time. We're talking about two, three, four, five, like I was going through this battle. And I couldn't do it. And I remember the day before court, I prayed, I did istikhara, and I told my friends, I could lose my kids today, but I can't take off my hijab. If I take off my hijab and go grab my kids, I lose both. I lose myself and I lose my kids because who am I gonna be? And if I go in with my hijab as who I am, I could lose my kids, but at least they will respect me one day and I will respect myself. So that was the scariest and hardest day of my life when I entered that courtroom. Um, there was police everywhere. It was not an easy day, yeah. but Allah spoke and I thought I was going to lose and I won sole custody 13 out of 14 counts for my children. And I was a day I surrendered and I was like, I hear you Allah. And during that entire, my divorce and all that, Allah showed up for me over and over again. And again, I have some vivid examples that my friends know where Allah was there and I knew it and he, everyone who knew me knew it. So it was this journey that I was on that I didn't understand, but it was vivid and it was starkling clear. Um, I talk about, I'm going to write a book one day called A Bowl of Cherries and I'll just, I'll end this story with this segment with that. Um, I've always worked. I told you I've made good money. I was a counselor. I worked corporate. You know, money yeah. was never something I thought about. I stopped working when I became a mom and I dedicated my life for my children. And with my divorce, there was a lot of things that happened, but I had no money. And I remember my ex, you know, I just, it was just messy and hard. Yeah. And I remember walking into a Walmart and seeing the cherries and I love cherries. And I whispered in my head, wow, I can't afford like, I was like, Arshia, you can't. And I didn't say these words. I'm saying them yeah. to you today. I said in my head, you can't buy those cherries that are $6.99 a pound right now. What is happening? Like, I was in this, like, what is happening? And I remember going home and just kind of, like, staying in that space. And people started coming over. And I kid you not, God is my witness. Every single person brought me cherries. 
to a point where my fridge was full of cherries and I gave cherries away. Yeah. And that moment, again, I showed you like Allah showed up every time. That was a whisper in my head. So you read in the Quran and you hear stories about Allah hears the whispers of your heart. But I was living this reality where I had no family, my kids were little, I'm in the courts, I'm a nonprofit person, I'm like barely making any money, and I am full of cherries. And so I gave cherries away and I, I surrendered. I was yeah. like, okay, Allah, whatever I am doing is something you expect me to do. I even, you know, and I'll say it to you because I'm older now and I wouldn't say it. I remember as I shut that door when my ex walked out and I had these two little boys hanging off my foot and looking at each of them on my legs. I was like, wow, this is why women become prostitutes. Like, what is a hard, fast, quick way for me to make money? How do I go from no one and not like, but I tell my kids today, I didn't, I don't use that, that language and that example, but I, you know, yeah. I say to myself, I'm like, the next day I went and got a job. The neck, I didn't take a penny from a person. I didn't, Allah kept saying, go, just make the effort, make the ask, talk, move. And I did. And so for two days, I, when my mortgage dropped, I was like, what? Keep going. I walked in, I need a job. Here's a job, sign. I got a job. I, I need to be home with my kids. My kids are struggling. Work from home, be with your like. It just kept crisscrossing, and I just kept falling further and further into surrender. And I kept moving. Um, but all of that, all of me, continued until MLFA showed up. And even that intersection was because I was dealing with an issue with my ex, and police were knocking on my door and treating me as though I was a criminal, banging, boom, boom. And I was like, what is that? And I hear the voicemail, and it's like, we are the blah, 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 and you can't. And I, why is the police calling? Like, what is happening right now? And I called my lawyer, and um, I was being like, my ex was trying to frame me for something, some sort of espionage. I don't, I don't even know what it was. But I remember calling a friend of mine, and I said, and who are lawyers? And I said, now I'm dealing with this stuff. And uh, she was like, Arshia, are you doing the hajjad? No. Okay, let's go do the hajjad. Okay, one. Another friend is like, have you heard of the MLFA? No. What is the MLFA? The Muslim Legal Fund of America. What do they do? They help Muslims who are in the courtroom. I'm like, are you kidding me? I've been in the courtroom for so long and there's an organization out there that helps Muslims who are in the courtroom. Who are they? What are they? And so that's kind of um, how I heard about MLFA. Um, but before I could reach out to them, they reached out to me. So they had heard about me because his friend knew me and knew the organization. Um, and during my interview i guess or my phone call with um with my previous uh with my predecessor the previous executive director i said well i need mlfa for blah 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 and i went he's like well we don't do that we don't do civil we don't do you know we don't do divorce we don't do family law mm. we do this and i was like oh okay well he's like but maybe you can help me i hear you're a development person <laughs> i was like uh yeah i'm a development person chief development yeah i've been He's like, I need that. MLFA needs that. We've not had development. We've been fundraising. We've, and he gave me the history of the organization. I was like, oh, well, first and foremost, I didn't know you existed. Second, I know what it feels like to be Muslim and be in the courtroom. I know what it feels like when you're treated like a criminal and they say Sharia law and everybody's like, stay away from her. Like, I know what it feels like. So wait, tell me more about this mission. And that was the beginning of my heart being like, Arsha, you might have found something that you were being prepped to fight for 
for the past 10 years. And so how did I say no? I didn't say no. I joined. So that's a crazy segue to into <laughs> MLFA. Uh, just a couple of questions before we, we, we go into that. Mm -hmm. so, so your ex is building a case against you that you're a terrorist. Hold on. Isn't he Muslim? Not a terrorist, but some sort of using plot. Islamophobia yeah, as, as a, a way to make me make me less credible. Right. And, yeah. So that I follow Sharia law, that I don't need halal haram, like using Moses and Jesus, like he was using prophetic like language to wow. say that I am like this and she has taken my kids and to, even to a point where he said, I am from the United States of America. And in my head, I was like, where am I from? Pluto? <laughs> like, yeah. So, um, wait, so how does that not undermine his position? Isn't he Muslim? Isn't he from a Muslim He said he was American. Country? He was born and uh, raised in America. Okay. And he said, I'm American. This is my, I was a green card holder. I was a Canadian citizen. Oh. And so I was an alien. So he's using that against so you. So he was using that against me. He okay. was an American. So that's all that mattered. I am normal and I am American. And she is not. Okay. Interesting. That was the, and yes, I think he's Muslim. Okay. I hear you. So, okay, what what does development mean? Because it seems like the MLFA needed it really badly and you had it. Mm -hmm. What does that mean in this context? So in this context, and this is, again, that started with Umma Center, was its development is a process of um, stewardship and organizational, I don't want to call it fundraising, although it is called fundraising. Mm -hmm. But it's not just going out and asking for money. It's finding like-minded people who align with mission. It's, it's, an, it's almost like an investment proposal. Hey, this is the mission. Will you be a mission partner in helping me move this mission forward? So there is a financial ask you know, for support, but that support is very intentional and that support is designed to grow with the person as long as the pit person is a mission driver. So it's not asking anyone and everyone. You do do that. Every, you know, fundraiser is mosques, we do do that, but you put out the mission. You know, so it's more than the money. The relationship should be transformative for and those are mission partners. So you see them as stakeholders. Like you are investing. So in the business world you you find investors when you have a great idea mm -hmm. and you want to build your investment. And the better your investments investors are, the stronger they are, the more opportunity you have to take risks, to develop your business concept, all of that. Well, nonprofits are no different. We are the third sector. We are a response to the government and the for-profit failing a group of people mm. in any given way. And so when we just go ask for money, it, it's a transaction. And, you know, I, and, I, and I've done that at MLFA. I've called them a lot of my donors and not all of them. A lot of them do and they're amazing and they are partners and they're stakeholders. But a lot of them just gave money at the mosque. So they were like, who are you? Yeah. What are you? What do you mean? I gave money at Ramadan and like, so that is what shifts in development. So you have very few of those people who just gave you money because the goal is as soon as they give you money, you ask them for a relationship, even if it's a small amount. You and I met just randomly, but you know, the point that I wanted, I want youth involved. I want young people involved. I want innovation. I want to know about the new technologies. And if I'm busy building here and I don't have that relationship with you, I, don't, I didn't ask you for money. In fact, I didn't want money from you. Like, don't give it to me until you believe in what I'm doing. Right. Because then there's other places you can give it. Like, if you just want to give, give. If you want to give to me, I want it, but understand what I'm doing so you can go with me. Yeah. Because it costs a lot of money to just keep asking for money 
and then having to ask again. So this is what development teaches you. The cost of acquiring a new donor is a lot more than maintaining a donor who's already said, I believe in what you're doing. Mm. Okay. Okay, interesting. So you came to the MLFA with something they really needed. Mm -hmm. Something they never had and something they wanted and something they recognized was a need for the organization. So MLFA was a reaction, like a lot of organizations, a response to an issue in the community. And mm -hmm. there were a group of activists in Dallas, Texas, who responded. And so the fastest and easiest way to collect funds was through the masjid. And a lot of the people who were being attacked after 9-11 were leaders of the masjid. Mm. So it made sense. Right. But yeah. and they did that for 14 years and they were very successful at it and they raised a lot of money and they helped a lot of people, but they also learned a lot. You know, so I, I respect that process because for 14 years fighting the good fight um, is important. And somebody said to me yesterday, Asha, you work really hard. I want to see you work smarter. And I'm like, hmm, what is that smarter actually look like? Right. <laughs> That's an intriguing kind of thing to yeah. say. Um, but when you're in the trenches and you're, you're feeling the pain of your people, you do work hard, right? There's a passion around it and smarter. And, and what she meant by that was, are you opening up new avenues for fundraising? Are you going into the non-Muslim communities? Are you building allies and partnerships who can do some of that work that you don't have to like go for? Yeah. Right. And so, yes, I am moving in that direction, but I can't go from here to here There's a process. And that's why it's called development because it takes time and truly a development director is successful usually after three years, mm. right? Cause then you kind of do an assessment of who's with you. You steward those who are with you to come, you know, stronger with you. You have impact. So you're looking at the impact that the organization is making. It's not just a transaction anymore. It's a transformational ask to make a transformational difference. How many of our organizations are driving mission? Some of us forget, you know, what, what missions we even are in because we're so caught up in the need for the business to maintain itself. So I am not that person. You know, I am, I wanna, and when COVID came, I asked that question and MLFA was in jeopardy because we didn't have that strong development arm. And so we had built something amazing and I had to pause and I asked leaders of our community, is MLFA really needed? I mean, I'm there and I understand it, but I want to know from the people who are here. I want to know. So I did an assessment and they're like, it's absolutely needed. Is it? Everyone's like, is it different than care? It's absolutely different. There's parallels, there's overlap, but there has to be. We're dealing with yeah. Muslim issues, right? So. I wanted to sort all that first and okay, now MLFA needs to go. So what does that going look like? And so it was really jumping inward and it, you know, and it was really making sure those pathways, those relationships, that communication, that impact was all kind of being managed and tracked so that I can have this conversation with you with integrity. As you can see, I'm not good at, you said, just go on the fly. I'll go on the fly, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not good at making stuff up. So I need to I know. No, this is solid. So uh, just on that note, mm -hmm. um, how, what's your mission statement at the MLFA? Like, how, how do you distinguish yourselves from CARE and other organizations? So our mission statement is to advance equality and justice for American Muslims and Muslim organizations um, by promoting legal compliance and protecting their rights in matters concerning national security law. Mm -hmm. How we are different. We redefined our mission. So when I joined MLFA, this was not our mission. But a part of my development work was to bring the entire organization together and look at our mission, our vision, our values, our, our so what, our why. Mm -hmm. 
and we went through an entire organizational planning process not even a strategic plan most organizations oh we're doing a strategic plan three to five years good i've done millions of those but this was about who are we what are we about what differentiates us from other organizations do we need to exist can we amplify in some other way so we took the lane uh, most of our we looked at our cases we looked at what we've been at for the past 14 years we looked at what we got good at we looked at who our lawyers were what they brought to the table and national security national security national security kept coming up mm. so now we are about national security and that is our mission and that is our goal we want an america just like everybody else where muslims belong where these all of these laws that were shifted and continue to shift that put minorities in different categories is not acceptable our constitution protects us from that and yet laws don't allow for some of those things to happen so we are going after those laws and we are doing it case by case um, so that we can set precedents and we can change the course of history for american muslims in our nation but we stay in our lane which is national security other organizations such as care do some national security but that is all we do we don't do other Islam like a lot of people have said Arshia can you come and talk to my school about Islamophobia can you talk to me about bullying I can't for my mission I can as a, as right. a leader and all right. those other but I can't as a CEO of MLFA got it okay so so your job is to go in and make sure that governmental institutions are complying with the law is that right not yeah it's too simple the okay. law was changed. Have you heard of material support, the Patriot Act? Yeah. There's, you know, terrorist enhancement, the Quad S. There's a whole bunch of laws out there that we as common people don't know about. Mm -hmm. Like, I did not know that I was on the terrorist watch list. You may be, mm. but I didn't know that I was. So, again, I was telling you about my American Canadian experiences. I'm driving to the to Canada. My father's in a hospital. I get in my car and I go. And I get stopped at the border for two and a half hours. It was the first time I was using my US passport and I was like, what? Canada's discriminating. Like the defense, you know what I mean? Like I'm angry and I'm defensive. Like what's happening? My father's in the hospital. Like let me go, I'm Canadian. Yeah. I'm holding an American passport. They're like, no, you need to stop. We need to check your car. For what? I had a little Corolla at the time. Like I'm like, what's happening again? So dogs are going in and out of my car. Wow. The FBI, the border security is asking me for to get into my phone. They take off my hijab. They put me in a corner. They, and I'm like sitting there going, what? Well, I don't like that. I was that ignorant. I and I don't blame anybody for it. I was just, you know, a person doing what people do. But these things are out there. And, yeah. and I experienced them and I didn't experience them for no reason. So I remember going back to Canada. I was like, oh, they stopped me. And I was like, complain. I felt violated again. But then I was like, who are you to complain? Like you got through, right? Like yeah. at the end of it, I was fine. But there's a lot of people who don't. There's a lot of people who can't. And, I, you know, when 9-11 was going, I'll go back to your country. Where do you want me to go? okay, I'll go back to Canada, you know, and I joke <laughs> with my kids and, you know, all the stuff we dealt with when President Trump was there. Yeah. And my kids were like, Mom, I'm like, shit me out. But I went and got my U.S. passport. I am now an American uh, because I yeah. did not want anyone to separate me from my boys. My boys were American, therefore I needed to be American. I saw what was happening with Trump coming into presidency. So I was like, okay, are she had time for you to become an American? Yeah. <laughs> So no one's going to say, you're not an American, you're an alien or whatever else. I'm from Pluto. Like, my kids are here. I am here. So there's a belonging and there's a way of being that we don't necessarily have 
because of all of the jabs and the hits that we constantly take. Right. And I yeah. am trained in counseling and I'm trained as a clinician and I'm trained as a life coach. So it allows me to take the trauma and process it maybe differently. But I've seen a lot of brothers and sisters who've broken from those experiences. I've seen suicide, you know, in our youth. I've seen a lot of things and I, I feel like, okay, Allah wants me to do something. I got to figure that out and do it the best I know how to do it. Got it. Okay. So when the MLFA is, is looking to make an impact in the Muslim community, are they essentially just policing, you know, the State Department? No. We are changing laws. So our approach, our strategic approach was different. We started case by case. And so we still are case by case. So you hear like you want to break a wall down, you go brick by brick. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, whether they're coming in with a bulldozer. We don't do bulldozer. Yeah. We do case by case, brick by brick, person by person. So the law is a tricky place to be. So I remember, again, in my own experience where one of my lawyers said, after I thought I won, I just told you I won sole custody. Yeah. What does that actually mean? And I had to appeal and I had to go through all of these layers of the law. And I remember my appeals lawyer saying, Arshia, justice is the last thing that happens in the American courtroom. Mm. It's like, what? Because my anger, my frustration was, I'm right, he's wrong, I, this is justice, I want. Like, that position didn't serve me. It doesn't serve us as Muslims. The law is there, the Constitution is the ultimate law, but there's laws that are created. And what MLFA does is we fight those laws that are now going against us, example, terrorist enhancement. and. And so in that situation, when we fight and we win, we create good law. So if you're in court, you may not have been in court, they reference cases. So even though there's this law, there's cases and lawyers use cases to defend or to protect or to win or to lose in their situation. Okay, so if we could just take a step back. Terrorist enhancement is a law that was, what is terrorist enhancement? You are, and this is actually one of our cases, and, you know, you are a white American man. Well, I'm I'm Arab, but yeah. You're a white American man. I'm just going to make it simple. Okay. I'm a brown Muslim girl, Mm -hmm. woman. I do something, you do something. We do the exact same thing. You will get maybe a year of probation, five years. I will get 13 times that for the exact same thing. Like I will get 13 years. This is statistically. Yeah. yeah. I'm okay. using averages. I'm being very simplistic so yeah. that we understand. But if I am labeled as a terrorist or if I am affiliated in any which way with any of the ter- terrorist issues in national security, yeah. then the way I am treated is exponentially harder and harsher than anybody else. So we look at two cases, exact same thing. And I have some cases right now where um, we have the mother of San, the San Bernardino issue. He murdered people. He was known as a terrorist, whatever. Mm-hmm. His mom threw away a text or threw away a piece of paper. She was going to be tried as somebody in terrorists, like, it, it, you know, taking that material support, taking that information away. Like, I'm forgetting what it's called in this moment. Um, obstruction of justice. Right. Because she threw away something that that belonged to a belonged to a dead terrorist. Yeah. Belonged to her son. Okay. Who who was accused of terrorism. But she could be tried and she would face five to eight years in prison because she threw it away. Because she threw it. it, Obstruction. Obstruction of justice. 
in a terrorism case. So that's a real case that we took and we won. And what did winning look like? Winning, well, first, before we won, she couldn't find a lawyer. If I come to you and I'll take away your Muslim hat, if I come to you as, and I say, I'm being accused as a terrorist and you're a a non-Muslim, so you don't have a veil, what do you feel or what do you fear? I don't want to have anything to do with her. Most people will say that. Mm. And they, so she couldn't find a lawyer until she found us. So first she couldn't find someone to even take her case. She's like, this is, and she was an older woman. So, you know, our mother's age, whatnot. She threw something away, fear, whatever. I don't even know the details and I don't want to get into details. Mm -hmm. But the point is obstruction of justice connected to terrorism would have landed her five to eight, five to nine years in prison. She was honest. She said what she did. We fought for her. Our lawyers were on her case and she got probation. Okay, this is interesting because when we learn how to change law in, in, in the classroom, no one mentions you do it by fighting cases. You do it by passing a bill. Like the I'm just a bill song on Capitol Hill. I don't know that song, but. Okay. <laughs> so you're not passing a bill. You're actually going to the courtroom and saying what you guys have here goes against the Constitution. And then you win the case. What happens to that law, like the terrorist law? So thing? we set a precedent. So we set good law. So there's so you didn't, that there's good law there. So by setting yeah. good law, so I'll use Nur Salman because that's our most talked about and most you know people say that should be all over the world. Like Nur Salman was the wife of Omar Mateen, who killed people in Florida. The the Orlando shooter. Orlando shooter. The, the gay bar. The gay bar. The Orlando shooter. Wow. Okay. Nur what about Salman her? was 100% innocent. She was a young mother. She, I personally interviewed her a few years ago when I was first with MLFA. She was planning to go to Disney with her three-year-old son and her husband. He went out and he did that that night. She was not there. She did not know he was doing that. Mm. She didn't know anything. He, he's dead. So she wakes up in the middle of the night. Again, I have a reflection of the police banging on her door. Yeah. I am blessed. I had one policeman. She had people with guns and... You can see it on TV, you can see yeah. it on the news, what she had to go. They take her, they take her child. That day, her son was taken to custody just like she was. They interrogate her, they tell her over and over again what, her, what he did, and she knew about it. She knew about it, she knew about it, she knew about it. She was 18 hours later crying, desperate, tired, where's my son? What is, I mean, I told you what I did for my children yeah. and what, She's the mother. Where is my son? He's in a different space. You're not going to see him again. She makes a confession. Again, I don't want to mess up the details. So, you know, read about these cases because mm-hmm. she confessed. They put her in jail. 23, and this is from her mouth, 23 of the 24 hours she's in solitary confinement and drugged. Wait, so hold on a second. How do you, how do you force a confession out of someone in the United States of America? Come like on. this isn't Syria. It's very common. How? Like they're holding her and they say, "Well, you know, if you confess, we'll let you out." Like just like that? They don't say those words. They they say it over and over again. You did this. You did this. You did this. Sign it. It's written here. You did this. If you did this, you will get. If you did this, if you sign this, you'll see your son. If this is what we read, this is what we see. Like so there is, I mean, there's a lot here and we're not going to unpack it in this podcast, but mm-hmm. if you haven't watched The Mauritanian, watch it. It's our story. If mm-hmm. you don't know about Nur Saman's case, research it. It's our story. It's my case. If you don't know about San Bernardino, research it. Watch it. 
So I'm going to go back to the question you asked me. What did we do? So she was in jail 23 of the 24 hours being drugged away from her son and being accused of terrorism. Basically, they said if she's associated with him, so she should be tried as a terrorist, not as anything else, as a terrorist. So that, again, you remember the terrorist enhancement. Mm -hmm. We fought her case. We won a full acquittal, which means we said she was 100% innocent. And that's what the jury finally said. And it was very contested. It was long and hard. But that prevented, so that law, that acquittal made it so that I, you, any other woman who gets associated with somebody who is considered terrorist is not going to be charged with the same kind of crime, not under terrorism. Mm -hmm. If that hadn't happened, if she was guilty, then anyone after that would have to go, they would say, they would mention her case. Mm. This happened in her case. This is what would happen for you. And so you're not going against this case, this law, there's the law, but you're going up against that case that is right. The, yeah. And that's the precedent. So we set the precedent. We made good law. We, she was acquitted. So that means you can't just, we, you know, we, so we are a lot of campaigns you'll see was guilt by association. Mm. So you can't just say that she's guilty by associating her to someone who was. She was a woman who lost a husband, who lost her child that day, who's going to be traumatized now. Like, I interviewed For her. Sure. She's a sweetheart. She came to my event. I have her recording, you know. But the second time I said, Noor, can you talk? She wants to. She couldn't. I know post-traumatic stress. Not only I, I'm trained, I'm in that space. Mm -hmm. So this is, these are other avenues that we don't pay attention to. Yeah. So... Um how much weight does setting precedent have in the justice system? It has a lot of weight. It can, you could, again, that's what you go against that law. So you go, the big law is there, but you go against the cases and mm -hmm. case versus case. Like, you know, so it has weight. Okay. Does it, does it become almost like an actual law? It becomes good law. It becomes the reference. It okay. becomes the reason. So if you're in court, if you go to a trial, they'll reference. This happened in this case. This is how they... So then the judges use that. It doesn't always mean it's a win, but it is a strong kind of advocate. It's like getting a reference and mm -hmm. getting multiple credential, like credentialed references. Like so, and this is happening all in the federal courtroom. That's MLFA's space. We're in the federal because we're going up against... You yeah. know, the Constitution. We're going up for the Constitution, not against it. We want to uphold the Constitution for American Muslims. We right. want American Muslims to be seen and treated like everybody else. In an, and that's a very loose statement. I know I say that knowing the minority movement. I know that seeing our African-American brothers and sisters, like if you know history, if you know if you're living in this space, you know if George Floyd's murder wasn't on... Camera. camera would it have been the movement that it became because people still questioned it yeah people still questioned it what do you mean we see it with our eyes and we question it it's the same thing and now put terrorists there we can say a black man going in for drugs like we the human brain rationalizes we saw people stepping on i couldn't see it i turned away i don't have that heart but i tried as long as i could and I had to turn away. But that was not just, oh, my God, these two did this. Therefore, they should. Like, that's what we would think, right? Yeah. That's not what it was. That's not what it was. That's never what it is. 
And that's my mandate now. Like, why am I having this conversation with you? Because Muhammadu Saleh said to me, he was the Mauritanian taken in Guantanamo, right. spent 14 years. He said, to, I said, what do I do? This is my privilege and my position. What do you want me to do to make it okay or justify or support you? You spent 14 years being tortured and hurt and in Guantanamo for nothing. You were never... You, there was never a crime. Right. For, for him, right, it was just a phone call that he got from someone right. that happened to be so affiliated with Al-Qaeda. So terrorist enhancement, right? Like, yeah. boom. 14 years later, he diapered, chained, tortured, cold room, hot room, food. He said to me, Arshia, if to, to be myself was to be hurt. Mm. To, to be good was to be bad. You know, so where do you go? And it's the same tone. It's the same laws. It's the same system that MLFA is fighting. Right. I so I asked him, what do you want me to do? He said, shed light. And when he said shed light, I remembered George Floyd. When he said shed light, Arshia, don't let this happen in the dark. Don't let my pain be hidden in the dark. That's why I wrote the book. Mm. That's why I went for this movie, because we don't know. And we don't know, we won't solve it. And the other challenge I've experienced in three years of being at MLFA is, and I've said this to my lawyers, this stuff is traumatizing for us. I've given you my itsy-bitsy examples of my own trauma around it. And so when Charlie Swift, who is the executive director of the CLCMA, which is the Constitutional Law Center for Muslims in America, which is the boutique law firm that MLFA funds to fight these cases, he said, Arshia, Muslims, he's like, hear me, listen to me. Muslims in America think the FBI is looking for a needle in a haystack. You are the needles. <laughs> I was like, oh. When you had the SSS, did you get the SSS? I always got the SSS. What's this? The Quad S. So if you've ever traveled, a lot of people get SSS, special security. Like, I don't remember what it all stands for, but it's the Quad S. That essentially means they think you're on the terrorist watch list or that's a special security measure. You're mm. being taken, you're being measured, you're being watched. And people, and we have a lot of clients who come to us because the Quadest gets in the way every single time. I have leaders of organizations who call me who have been to TSA who go everywhere. And yet when they come out of a plane, two FBI's are waiting for them. They can go and talk to the TSA, but on the ground, their name is marked and people are waiting. They call me and I call them sometimes. I'm like, I was just thinking of you. Instead of getting, I missed my plane. Two and a half hours of security, of checking, of this, of that. Like, mm -hmm. and those are the cases we take on. Because again, some of us are privileged. I've gone through all of these things, but I got through them. And some of us are not. And, and we have to fight that. That's not okay. Yeah. Right? That, that actually sounds very similar to a case that care fights like mm -hmm. uh, Hassan Shibidi was involved in fighting for cases, uh, fighting cases where people were being just interrogated at airports mm -hmm. and being held and, and whatnot. So is that a place of overlap between your institutions? It could be. Uh, you know, I, and I know there is some overlap in certain CARES, not all of them. A lot of CARES do different things, but there are, and I think Hassan Shibli's CARE, I know he was a great partner for MLFA, and I know we've crossed a lot when I was new to MLFA, and he was at CARE. He even spoke at my gala back in 2019 or 2020, I'm not sure which one, mm -hmm. um, because there is overlap. So when he, he feels like I've done my limit, 
he'll come to MLFA and say, now let Charlie and the team take it for, for further. Um, and sometimes he can handle it. And sometimes it's just advisory. And sometimes it's a partnership. So it depends on the cases uh, because there are individuals. Um, but yeah, I'm sure that there's a lot of cases that do have that overlap. Okay. And, and probably they would he would leave it to you because you guys are more specialized, especially mm -hmm. in national security. Yeah, either law. he would leave it to us if it makes sense, because again, at the end of the day, we're both we're all aligned to do right for our communities. From right. so either he will he will he will consult with us and we will give our feedback. He will take it, or he will say for us to take it. So it just depends on capacity, ability, and scope. And a lot of people have asked me about partnerships and, you know, that's something else this year that I really want to blow up. We do have a lot of partnerships and we do have a lot of pro bono, but we don't talk about it because we've, we weren't designed to talk about it. So remember, development is relatively new for MLFA. Yeah. We were a fundraising machine and we were good at it and we were a legal machine and we were good at it. So my intersection is to turn it into this nonprofit where we are good at it, but we are also talking about it in a way that shows social impact, that brings the community in, and that it's it's in the United States. Like you know, I am an American. I'm no I tell people I'm North American. I don't say American. As Why like, is Where that? Are you from? Because I'm North American. I'm Canadian and I'm American. I'm not okay. giving up my Canadian to be American, and I'm not giving up my American now to be Canadian. I am both. I have both passports. It gives me power. I hope. Yeah. I could still get in trouble. I know this. But it was I'm better off than Muhammadu. Mm -hmm. And that's when he said, Arshia, talking to me might get you in trouble. I said, I'm the CEO of MLFA. I'm pretty sure trouble is around the corner. Like, but I can't run from it. I d I'm not trying to cause trouble. I'm not against the government. But I'm doing what every American has, you know, who's been born and bred here does. We fight for our rights. I put my hijab on. My mom took hers off. Mm. You know, when she came from India, she took off the hijab to assimilate. When I was in college, I decided to put on the hijab to differentiate. Yeah. It's our time. Our parents, bless them, they did their part. Now it's me. It's Generation X. And what I think I said to you when you and I first met is my challenge is, is if the younger generation is not taking time and scope to understand what these organizations are doing, all the work we did is going to go into nothing. I need you. And I need you to tell me if you think I'm wrong, if you think I'm doing it in, in a way that's not the way you want to hear about it, fine. But you don't have the back. I don't have all of the back end. I was trained as developing organizations. So I, I'm a human emergence and an organization emergence leader. Yeah. But national security wasn't my thing. I was Muslim. I dealt with a lot of Islamophobia structure and, 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 and otherwise. But national security is a whole thing. I'm still learning. I'm three years in and I'm still learning. Charlie, make sense of that for me. Call me. Christy, tell me that again. Kate, tell me that again. Because it doesn't, it doesn't register. Because we want to believe what we want to believe. I want to believe in Kumbaya. I want to believe that. And I have to be mindful now. that, it, And I need you to have consciousness of that. Because when somebody said you were on the terrace watch list, I was like, why? And if I say that to the wrong person, they're going to move away. I need you to move in. I need you to look at that. And I meet random people all the time. And they're like, I have the quad S. You're probably on the watch list. The watch list is growing. It's not going less. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it just keep, keeps getting worse and worse. It doesn't matter, Democrat Huck or Republican. Hucker Bato, my friend. I'm going to take you all the way back to Allah. That's where I started with you. What's Allah. that word you use there? Hucker or Bato. Truth okay. or falsehood. Got it. That's our premise. 
the good and the bad in the world will fight till the end of time. That's our belief, right? Yeah. So we say that Muslims, it's going to get harder for Muslims. So why are we shocked when it is? And what does harder look like? It looks different today, but it doesn't mean it's easier. And we are a body, right? An ummah. We are yeah. one. So if you're hurt, I should be hurt. So if you're hurt and I look away from you, what, where is my iman? What am I doing? And that's why I said I have gotten job offers. I have gotten like, you know, we'll give you unlimited this. Well, like, I mean, it's not, it doesn't even matter anymore. Like what am, I can't look away. And yeah. I don't want to be stuck in this one space. I don't want it to be Muslim for Muslim anymore because I am not Muslim for Muslim. I am Muslim for all. I'm a believer. That doesn't mean I'm just stuck in a corner. The Prophet came out of the cave. So we have to come out of the cave and we have to engage and we have to talk and we have to understand and we have to connect. When MLFA was like kind of in the air, I was thinking of my boys. I was a single mom, I told you, 10 years. I was like, what is my boy's life gonna look like? Just like the African-American moms think about their boys. I wasn't different. When I became okay with the cost of my own legal fees, was when I saw that Turkish boy, or was he a Syrian boy in the Turkish water, the red shirt. Oh, yeah. And I story. remember, and I was leading, I'm always leading youth, and I love working with youth, and I remember that day saying, are we just in this world now where we look and we feel bad on social media, and then we keep going? Because that little boy made world news. He was a body on the ground just lying there and I was a mother of boys that age and that size when I was fighting and so what I told myself is actually every dollar you ever set in the system who cares there are mothers on earth putting their babies in boats like Musa salam and saying go yeah. maybe you'll live and prosper so if I spent 300,000 200 I did because it's they're my children it's my responsibility and they don't owe me a thing for that I don't tell them you owe me because I fought for you. It's the next generation. It's my responsibility. God gave you as a gift to me. And my job is to make sure that you go and be the best you can be. That's the same with our missions. It's the yeah. same imana. Like, so everyone's like, oh, MLFA. I don't own MLFA. I am a steward of MLFA. I care about the mission because it's a mission now. It's an underdog mission. People don't understand it. So I have to humanize it. I have to talk about it. And I have to bring the youth. I want youth. I want women. I want my sisters and brothers. I want my allies. I want my non-Muslims. Because this is a human rights violation. This is about religious freedom. This is about Americans being Americans. This is the Black Lives Matter movement. This is all of that stuff. Right? Yeah. I can see why they, they made you the CEO <laughs> and, and they put you on all those boards. You're very inspirational. Mashallah. Uh, that's solid. So, um, we're we're coming up on the hour. I just I, I kind of want to jump into one question before Please. we close. Um, when you became the CEO, was anyone opposed to it? Oh, I'm sure. Were there? W w was anyone like, oh man, a, a woman in charge? Oh yeah. Any any older I've, generation? I've, oh yeah, I got a lot. I still get it. Women, really? Women take over. I've been slandered. I had friends who I thought were friends who were like, why did she get it? Like, you see it all, you know, and I'm older now and I'm grateful for being older. You mm -hmm. know, um, I remember the prophet said after 40, there's a different, and I, I felt it. 
I felt. I turned 40 at Hudge, and it was the year my father died. It was the year that I was at Hudge, and it was the year that my brain changed again. And so, yes, people are not happy for me or whatever, and some are, and some are like, wow, it's really cool that a woman's doing it, and some are like, why the hell is a woman doing it? And it's not about man or woman. Do you have the skills? Can you do it? Do right. it. Like, we talk. And I, and I hate that about our community sometimes. Like, we hurt ourselves. Like, I keep saying, I mean, there's, there's coming bigger. When I say haqqar batal, I've taken you back to Allah from the beginning of time to the end of time. There's something bigger out there. And if we are divided, I mean, this is the sadness and the pain of the Muslim ummah, right? Like, if we are, you know, wherever we're from, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, whatever, if we're, if we're stuck in this noise... We've forgotten the message. He stood at the end and said, we are one ummah. You hurt, I hurt, your women, your men, your black, your white. This is about the worship of Allah. This is about being stewards on this earth. This is about being the lights, his beacon. How do we do that? So I'm like, I, if you say Arsha is not going to be the CEO, okay, I did my part then. Yeah. Am I proud of what I've accomplished? Absolutely. I know I did what I didn't even think I could do. Not by myself. I have an amazing board. I have an amazing community. I have friends and allies. I have staff. And everyone took a hit. And everyone worked hard because COVID was hard. A lot of Muslim organizations, a lot of nonprofits shut down. A lot of businesses shut down. A lot of families died. But if Allah wants us to keep going, he helps us. Like, this is yeah. what I mean about truth will manifest. The need, so we fight the good fight for the right reasons in the right way, and we are open to feedback. We have to be. So I'm not sitting here saying I've arrived and I'm it. I am telling you, I have a ton to learn, but I am doing it step by step, day by day, case by case, person by person, in order to, inshallah, meet Allah and say, I did, I took my entire life and experience, and you showed me the way. And I came to you and I kept going for the ummah, for the community. And when I say ummah, some people are like, it's just Muslims. It's not. Everybody after the Prophet ﷺ, this is his ummah. Yeah. All of us, Muslims and non-Muslims. So I don't want to be just MLFA in the masajids. My masajids are beautiful and I need to be there. I don't want one masajid to drop MLFA. But I also want every, all the foundations to pick up MLFA. I want corporations to pick it up. I want my young to pick it up. I want my brothers and sisters because, and I want my mothers because it is a human thing. If you were taken away from your family, he was 28, Muhammadu, mm. when he was taken. He has said the most ever, he went through torture and torture and torture. You can read about it. He has a book, he has everything. But the most painful thing for him, he said, was the day they told him that his mother died. He said, I was in so much pain, Arshia. He's a, he's a hafiz. I stood up and I recited the Quran until I collapsed. I wanted my body to catch up to the pain I was feeling emotionally. Mm. You, I mean, I, I lost my father five years ago. Like, but I had the blessing of being with him and serving him. He said, the last time I saw her, they, he said he was in Germany and protected. They went to her, his mom in Mauritania, 
and they called him using his mom. When he came, they took him, and they didn't know why. And she, he drove the car, and they told her that she was in the Mauritanian. Uh, he, she was in the Mauritanian prison, so she brought food and clothes all the time. He wasn't there. He was taken to Afghanistan, to Jordan, and then to Cuba. Wow. And he said the last I saw of her was there. And that, when she died, when I, he was already like, they said they were going to free him, but then it took another six or seven years. Like, it took, this is why I'm saying people think, oh, the court system. I'm still in the court system, guys. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? Why are you still in the court system? Get another lawyer. I've had multiple lawyers, I've had multiple judges. I have only two boys from that space. And I'm still in court. And I will be, when my lawyer had told me you're going to be there till they're 18, I fired that lawyer because I was like, he's not going to fight for me. Now it's a system. It's not designed to help me. The system doesn't benefit from me being free of the system. Mm. The system gets paid every time we show up. So why would the system want me out? And everything becomes relative. The benefit of your children, the benefit of your country. And that's why I say to you, you have a Muslim brother standing there and you're like, in enforcements, like you saw all of this stuff, all these rules and laws. Who do you trust? How do you know? So when people say women take over, blah, say what you will. This is my rule and my responsibility right now. And until it, as long as it is, I'm going to give it my all. And the moment I moved, I'll say Alhamdulillah. Like I said when I, I was like, are you sure? Let me, like here now. But if I didn't jump and I didn't say yes, where would we be? The organization couldn't survive COVID if you didn't apply development because the massages were closed. So I knew that I knew how to drive. So was I supposed to jump into the car and take it and drive? Or was I supposed to let it crash because I was a woman? People knew that I knew how to, how to drive that car. So they said, hey, can you drive it? If you don't drive it, we crash. Okay, I'll drive. What am I supposed to say? No, sorry, let it crash. I'm not stupid. Yeah. I didn't get here because I'm stupid. Of course. And I have a responsibility to the Ummah, and I know that. I have to thank Allah, like the Prophet, you know, when Bibi Aisha, one of his wives said, why do you stay up and, and pray and your, your feet are swollen and you, you come every night? Allah has already, he said, don't I owe my Lord gratitude? Yeah. I feel that way. My Lord has allowed me to walk through places that I didn't think I would survive. My children are beautiful and blossomed and young men, and I can piggyback on them right now. Yeah. Don't I owe my creator gratitude in the service of his people who are innocent? I told Muhammad, you remind me of Hazrat Bilal. What wouldn't I do if I think of Hazrat Bilal and I think of the rock on his chest and he's being beat because he's Muslim? Why is Muhammadu different? Why is Nur Salman different? Why is the mother of San Bernardino different? What is their crime? What was my crime? She follows Sharia law. Damn right she does. She's Muslim. But Sharia law means water. It means clean and clear and the path. That's powerful. Sister Arshia, I appreciate your time. I think uh, this is a great way to close... Uh, our interview. This is a, a very inspirational interview. I'm not gonna lie. And uh, the MLFA. I mean, the, 
it's awesome to see that they have you as the CEO. I couldn't think of anyone better, honestly, in terms of our leadership. So thank you. Inshallah. May Allah help us and be with us all every step of the way. Inshallah. We need a part two, though. We didn't get into the cases. So let's do a part two, inshallah. Sounds and good. Uh, I'll come back up here and I'll, I'll, I'll swing by, inshallah, if you're available. And we'll do a part two about the cases at the MLFA. Sounds good, inshallah. Appreciate thank you so time. much for having me.